Hi everyone and welcome to the latest episode of The FFS Show, a podcast about misinformation and fact-checking by The Ferret. I am your host, Ali Bryan, uh, FFS Fact-Checking Leads, and we are here with another of our guest co-hosts this week, Paul Dobson. How are you, Paul? Yeah, I'm good. I'm excited to make my debut as as a co-host rather than just sort of a an interviewee. So yeah, making the big promotion, a lifetime dream. Yeah, thanks. That's very convincing. Um, <laughs> we, you were, yeah, it's true. You have appeared on this podcast as a top global expert before. I think talking about the Scottish government's climate plan, if I remember rightly. Yeah, I think that's correct. Um, maybe been on another time as well, but I'm um, trying to jog oh, really? my memory. Okay. Of still exactly what we discussed. So it was clearly one of the most fascinating episodes you've done. Um, yeah, yeah. One confirmed, one other possible. Yes. Um, so um, could you, just for those who don't know who you are, um, can you explain like who you are, your role at The Ferret? Yeah, so um, obviously I'm an investigative journalist with The Ferret, mostly focusing on environmental issues, um, but also, yeah, looking at sort of uh, land reform, uh, sort of political issues, things like that as well. So, um, and I'm not on to speak about something environmental today, which is nice as well. Um, so that's great. Um, yeah. And yeah, obviously making the debut on a, a quiet news week where nothing's really happened. So, um. yeah, well, that's, I mean, there there is a, a regal <laughs> elephant in the room, but on this podcast, we're, we're continuing with our fact checking. The ferret in general is continuing to do the investigative news that we always do, sort of leaving the uh, pictorial tributes and long running uh, coverage of various ceremonies to the more mainstream broadcasters. And yeah, keeping on going with um, what's been going on in the news beyond. In fact, that brings us to the explainer we'll be talking about this week, which is about the Scottish government's announced rent freeze. Is it not, Paul? Yeah, so obviously big news announced last week in the programme for government. Um, slightly been overshadowed by other events, but I'm sure it's mm. something that people will be very interested in. Yeah, definitely. And uh, after that, we have uh, one of our exclusive interviews with Sander van der Linden, who is a professor of uh, social psychology. He is fairly well known in the sort of field of misinformation, disinformation, um, and has developed this theory of inoculation or pre-bunking, which is these two slightly different things, but basically relate to the idea that as well as doing what we do, which is sort of after the fact, fact checking, it's that very much like a virus, people actually need to be sort of vaccinated from a virus before they encounter it. So uh, his theory is that they do this through a method of exposing people to a sort of weakened form of uh, the virus. That's not the case was uh, in the COVID-19 vaccine, just to be clear. But <laughs> um, uh, in, or in order to help to inoculate people so when they do see misinformation like in the wild, they are better prepared to question it and find accurate information. Uh, so that's the interview we've got coming up. But before that, we are going to get into Paul's work on the rent freeze. So should we get into it? Yep, let's go. So, Paul, the uh, rent freeze that's been announced, it's kind of in the context of obviously the housing crisis that's happening in Scotland and the UK um, and the cost of living crisis that's happening at the same time and putting renters under a lot of pressure, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, obviously, rent has been rising over a long period of time and it's become an mm. increasing issue, particularly over the last 10 years, I think. But it's become 
thrust into sharper focus by particularly the energy price crisis and other sort of rising costs of food and just general inflation. Um, yeah, people's rent, which is still for the majority of people their biggest outgoing, has right. become a huge burden. So what are the like the, the measures that are in place? What are the details of what's happening? Yeah, so the specific measures, so the Scottish government put through emergency legislation last week uh, to introduce a rent freeze. So if that was practically effective from the 6th of September. So basically, and you would not be able to receive a letter from your landlord saying your rent increases from then. Um, there's still a few details to be ironed out in terms of what happens if you got one, say, at the end of August, and it's yet to come yeah. into effect. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of housing charities and tenants unions are raising with the Scottish government. And the other sort of complementary piece of legislation is an eviction ban, so a moratorium on evictions for landlords, uh, basically meaning that they can't uh, evict tenants who are unable to pay their rent over the winter because they're struggling with other bills or other costs. Yeah, that's, that was put in place during COVID as well, wasn't it? The, the eviction moratorium. Yeah, it was. And I think that that is something that's maybe uh, impacted the current decision because a lot of renters have got into arrears over COVID because they were right, they, they weren't, able to be, weren't able to be evicted and then they built up these arrears and then, yeah, that's then obviously weighing down on the energy crisis, you know, rising rents as well. So you've just kind of got this kind of maelstrom for renters at the moment in terms of the amount of money they're due people. And I think that's mm. what's kind of affecting the uh, Scottish government's decision to introduce the moratorium on evictions as well as the rent freeze as well. So it's affect the rent freeze is affecting all renters in Scotland. So it's not just social, but private renters as well. Yep. So it's across the social and private rental sectors. So for people who don't know, the but 24% of households in Scotland are in the social rental sector. So that's people that mm. are renting from a housing association or their local government, you know, council housing. Um, and then 14% are in the private rental sector. But yeah, the freeze will affect both both sectors. Um, it's sort of the private rental sector that's seen particularly steep price rises, um, yeah. as you say, sort of linked to the housing shortages. But uh, social renters have also seen rises over the last sort of five or six years as well. Um, and obviously... With social renters, a lot of them are low income, so sort of shocks in terms of income will have a lot of impact on them compared to sort of other sectors of society. Yeah, well, this ties in a bit with the stuff the ferret did, uh, God, a few months ago now, um, which was uh, looking at how much the kind of proportion that uh, private renters were paying of their salary uh, on rent. Um, and we also did another piece, uh, Jamie Mann did a piece about renters being forced to bid for rents, you know, when, when, when they went to a viewing, basically being a forced to like, bid on rental properties, which is something that sort of s seemingly hadn't been happening that much until the last until recent years. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I think I mentioned that in the explainer, Jamie's piece, which was obviously really informative during our cost of living series. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think what he found was that, you know, low income people, in certain cities, particularly Edinburgh and Glasgow, would be paying more than half of their half of their income on rent, which is obviously like when you're then facing massive energy price increases, it starts to become unsustainable pretty quickly. Um, yeah. And as you say, the the rental bidding stuff that it ties in with is that's all linked to supply of housing. Um, you know, because there's less houses on the market. Um, house prices go up and increasingly landlords are deciding to sell up their properties rather than put them on the rental right, market yeah. 
because they want to take advantage of those high prices and that is leaving just sort of less stock and meaning that people have to compete harder over these remaining rental properties um, and that sort of bidding process seems to have been something that's come out of this and seems to have emerged sort of since covid particularly um yeah and it seems to be as as jamie's report said sort of across scotland as well it's, it's not just in edinburgh and glasgow it seems to be something that's affecting people across the board yeah well, it was also in, in terms of which so we talked about that lack of supply because landlords are selling up or because they're going for a short you know um, holiday rentals or something but there's also a lack of supply because there's been a lack of building yeah I mean that's the fundamental issue is that there's an under supply of homes being built so without that sort of fundamental issue being solved I think it, it seems to me um and this is more of an opinion than sort of part of the explainer it seems to me that the problem is not going to go away until you've just got an increase in supply but i mean that that could be solved in different ways um but yeah it seems at the moment that, that the scottish government needs to focus more on house building if it wants to solve this problem is there anything out there in terms of what level the market is undersupplied with houses i think there was a report from home for scotland which is sort of the industry body for the uh, building sector which said it was an mm. undersupply of a hundred thousand homes across scotland uh, so obviously and that will increasingly get worse unless supply starts to catch up with demand. So yeah, I mean, 100,000 people is a lot of people. Uh, you consider the size of the rental sector, I think it's around about 240,000 properties in total. So yeah, yeah uh, you're talking about a large amount of homes needing to be built to catch up with that sort of demand that's there. Yeah, and we're obviously the situation we're in at the moment, so in terms of the cost of living, you've got... Um, increasing prices for goods in general you've also got the uh, electricity uh, the whole electricity issue which is um, obviously feeds into this and has a massive impact on how much people are able to pay both their electricity bills and then the knock-on effect of their other bills but this is something that renting organizations and uh, housing organizations have been calling for for a fairly long time um in terms of re rent freezes and uh, uh controls on the rent rental market that hasn't been put in place so what's their reaction been to this and is it too little too late are, we, are they happy that it's happened now or are we in a situation where they've waited until we're in, this, in a complete disaster situation before they've put these in place yeah i mean that that's kind of like the been the reaction across the board to the reactions to the cost of living crisis it's the same with the energy prices it's like they're being frozen but they're being frozen at this really high level that's twice as much yeah. as we we're paying last year so it's like the freeze is better than it not being frozen but like what you really want is the prices coming down and i think that's been the reactions from tenants unions and other groups to the rent freeze as well which is that this is good it's it's a step in the right direction but actually what we need is is prices coming down so they're they're sort of pushing really hard for rent controls to be introduced which would actually control prices rather than rather than just freezing them at their current level from the other side what have um, landlords been saying i can't imagine they're too happy unsurprisingly they're not too happy no um i mean there's the sort of main reaction from like landlord bodies has been that the measures put in place will actually make the lack of supply worse so they claim that essentially because landlords won't be able to increase rents and potentially you know cover costs that they also have that they might take housing off the market and um, so either let vacant properties remain vacant or sell up and therefore again reduce that supply of rental properties available and they argue that that will again squeeze the market and just mean that the competition for 
rental properties will go through the roof even further. Um, I've not sort of done any digging into what the level of truth in that is. Um, and obviously, mm. you know, rent controls, rent freezes are, yeah, they're a very sort of polarizing issue. Um, so, yeah, I think that we'll have to wait and see on that one. It might be a fact check for you to do further down the line, I think. <laughs> I'm uh, Sander van der Linden. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Cambridge, and I study how people are influenced by information, particularly misinformation, and what we can do to counter it. We are a sort of after-the-fact fact-checker, um, so we, right. tend, we tend to work with debunking information that's already out in the world, that's already become, gone viral, already has like a, a significant sort of footprint and impact. But one of the things that we constantly come up against is how likely we are to actually shift people's mindset. and Obviously, you've been involved in work that attempts to try and do that before the information comes to them, haven't you? So the terminology you used is, is the inoculation theory or pre-bunking. I wondered if you could explain a little bit about that. I think fact-checking and debunking is, is great and important. Uh, there's just a few challenges that we have to deal with that if you try to debunk something after the fact, um, you know, you, you have to undo the damage when it's already done. And that can be tricky because yeah. of the way that memory works, right? That people acknowledge a correction, but some of the misinformation will still linger because memories are like networks. And so it kind of infects all of the associated networks. And so even if you correct one node, it, it still leaves traces behind in other parts of our, our memory network. Um, yeah. As you probably well know, misinformation tends to go viral and all the weeks that people put into fact-checking don't always receive the same level of, of engagement. So there's yeah. a lot of these practical challenges to, to, to fact-checking. And so we thought, well, what if we could um, help things by preemptively uh, inoculating people or, or pre-bunking? And so the idea really follows from the medical analogy that just as you inject people with a weakened dose of a virus uh, to trigger the production of antibodies to help confer resistance against future infection, maybe you could do the same with misinformation. So you preemptively right. inject people not with a weakened dose of a virus, but a weakened dose of a falsehood and you refute it in advance. Um, and so the way that the vaccine analogy works is that you give people a weakened dose of the falsehood and then a very strong refutation or a very convincing fact check to neutralize that, that weakened dose um, so that people can build up the, the sort of antibodies uh, cognitively and, and intellectually uh, over time so that when they come across it in the real world, the full dose, um, they've become more resistant to it because they've seen it before in weakened form. They've received counter arguments or rebuttals and fact checks that they can use to neutralize it. So could you give us a sort of practical example of how that could work? You can take a specific uh, claim, such as that uh, scientists disagree about the human causes of climate change. So there's a lot of misinformation that suggests that uh, there is no consensus among scientists and that there's a debate going on and that it's, you know, uh, th that it's all unclear what's causing climate change. And um, and so that was partly fueled by misinformation, you know, partly by just bad journalistic practices of of inviting deniers on public TV and debates like the BBC, which is obviously a credible outlet. Uh, and, and they've admitted that they've done that. So that's caused a lot of confusion about this idea that scientists don't agree. So how could you inoculate people? And so there's this, this website that went viral on Facebook and was later you know, rated pants on fire by independent fact checkers such, such as yourself. It's called the Global Warming Oregon Petition. It looks like a 
petition, if you go to the website and it says, oh, 30,000 scientists have signed this saying that global warming isn't real. Um, and um, we thought, well, what if we could inoculate people before they come across this website? Or maybe they've already heard of it, but they've not really thought about it too much, so we can still inoculate them. So the cognitive inoculation, it, it consists of two components. The first is a forewarning, which is meant to kickstart the immune system. So we warn people that there's actors out there trying to deceive them on the issue of climate change for political reasons. And right. the warning is important because, you know, people are bombarded with information. So you have to get them to pay attention in some way. And so the, the, the warning that you might be manipulated uh, triggers uh, the, the sort of idea of epistemic vigilance or the, the idea that people you know, want to monitor what's going on because nobody likes to be manipulated. Then the pre-bunk or the preemptive reputation comes in that, that follows from that. Uh, so we told people, we don't repeat the misinformation, but we, we tell people, you know, look, there's uh, petitions out there. They use this thing called the fake expert technique. So they get lots of bogus people to sign on. And then it's going to look like all of these professionals or scientists are saying that global warming isn't real. However, uh, you should know that people on these petitions include like Dr. Gary Hallowell from the Spice Girls, Charles Darwin. But also, even if this were the case, you know, 30,000, it sounds like a big number. But in fact, if you look at science graduates, because this petition has, you know, doesn't have any standards, you know, anyone can sign up. So if we include uh, any anyone with a science degree, then 30,000 is 0.01 percent of all science graduates in any year, completely meaningless and so on. Um, and then later in the experiment, we let people go to the website and then we test them about, you know, their perceptions of, of the science. And we find that, you know, people don't have full immunity, but they've been inoculated to, to a significant degree. How long does the effect last if someone's inoculated? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So um, um, it kind of depends on the format. So what we call the virtual needle. So you could do, you know, we have gamified intervention. Some of those games are 20 minute deep simulations into the world of, of being misled online. Some are five minutes. We have videos, you know, some are a minute and a half, some are 30 seconds for deployment on, on social media. And then we have text based, you know, inoculations that are just written text. And, and so you could, you could, you know, there's some differences across these formats and with intensity and duration. But Generally, you know, if we take some of our, let's take some of our strongest interventions, so that sort of 20 minute deep dive, um, we found that that lasts for about, um, well, the effect sort of lasted for about three months, but it required uh, what we call boosting people in between. Um, so if you don't boost people in between with, with reminders or engaging them again on the, on the content, then the effect wears off over the course of three months, pretty pretty exponentially. Um, but if you engage with people and remind them and, and motivate them to, to sort of remember and, and stay alert, then you can, you can keep the effect pretty stable for, for about three months. Yeah, and you're also dealing in an environment, of when you're talking about social media, where the attention span is very low. Yeah. So that does suggest there's some, like, you know, you're getting more play than a lot of things are. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's how we see it. Yeah, at least there's something going on here that's positive. And, and we try yeah, to be right. creative about how to how to maintain it over time. But I don't think it's realistic to, yeah, to expect that people will just retain whatever you say indefinitely. Oh, yeah, this morning, uh, before we went came on, I was um, playing a bit of Go Viral, and I was playing Cranky Uncle. Yeah which is another one of the games you've been using. And I think this, what's really interesting about uh, both of them, particularly Cranky Uncle, is that you're playing 
kind of as the bad guy. Yeah. Well, not as the bad guy, but as the misleader, yeah. um, which is a really interesting way of look, looking into it. You end up uh, kind of getting into the idea of what's what's false information, what's misleading information, without it kind of being bludgeoned over the head with it, which can often be the case with fact-checking, where it's just like, this is wrong, this is right. Yeah, that was a conscious choice for us. I mean, in the beginning, years ago, fact-checkers were a bit iffy about this whole idea of of, of, of lending the bad guy perspective to, 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 you know, sort of convey some of these lessons. But for, for us, the metaphor is really that uh, in order to get people's mental immune system working, they need to experience uh, some level of threat. Um, and one yeah. way to generate that is to put them in the shoes of somebody who's actively trying to deceive other people to try to understand the tricks that they use so you can be inoculated against them. Of course, in a controlled environment where, where there are weakened doses and use of humor and, you know, the idea is not to expose people to the full dose without without any refutations, because, you know, that would be that would that would not be the idea. Um, so so, you know, you, you'd make sure that you're not actually persuading people of anything, but you give them. Because, you know, a lot of the content in the game is completely fictional. Um, and so, yeah. but it is about the idea of, of giving people a bit of a, uh, uh, yeah, a jolt uh, to, to try to understand and be motivated to, to learn more about this. I think one of the things I'm really interested in about this is how, what impact it has on different types of people. So um, I read that um, you said that, that you found that or research you were involved in found that obviously people on the extremes politically are more likely to believe in conspiracy conspiratorial thinking um is there a difference between different the different political sides and how much the um, inoculation theory actually works on them does it depend on what they're re- like what issue they're talking about so is there a difference between yeah so, you know some part party, party policy stuff and climate change another thing i was also interested in is like age cohorts are, are people who are older more or less likely to be impacted by this sort of work? Well, you know, I think part of the the, the momentum of pre-bunking inoculation revolves around the possibility to avoid talking too much about specific issues. And that's kind mm-hmm. of the, the way that, I think that's why the tech platforms like it, because, you know, kind of like how they outsource those judgments to fact yeah. checkers, they kind of can outsource- they take a position on it. They don't have to take a position. Yeah. They can just tell, look, we're just telling you what, what a conspiracy theory is or, or right, how yeah, yeah. scapegoating works. And so that's how we avoid a lot of reactants and a lot of uh, uh, sort of negative uh, reactions that sometimes you get with confronting people with, with a fact check that they don't like uh, because it, it, it uh, you know, it goes against their worldview. Um, yeah. Doesn't mean it's completely, I mean, there's still people who don't trust uh universities or governments or, or tech companies and so they'll, they'll always be distrustful but for most people um that seems to be a good approach when you're trying to avoid uh political discussions now when you do apply inoculation to issue-based uh topics um we found that the, the sort of narrative that you're helping to empower people to the spot manipulation reduces a lot of the reactants that you otherwise see in terms of telling people what the facts are. And so the, the, mm. the inoculation narrative revolves more around, look, there's these people trying to deceive you. And here's an example of how they might do that on this specific issue. And this is what you should know about it. Uh, and, and the way that is worded is less confrontational for people. And so they yeah. seem to, to be more open to considering it.
thanks to Sandra there for that interview. Uh, I think it's a really interesting, like, different way of looking at things, certainly from our perspective uh, in fact-checking, which is like, we see false information and we fact-check it. Is that really enough to change people's minds uh, when they're being bombarded with misinformation from different sides? Uh, I know for me, like the idea of having, uh, you know, videos or whatever before the information you're seeing is certainly an interesting way to go. Do you think that would be useful for yourself as you navigate the social media sphere, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. So the disinformation is sort of one of the big issues of our time. And I think, yeah, although the sort of fact-checking response is obviously really, really valuable, um, you are sort of limited by how many people can see them. So I think a proactive approach where people are able to make these decisions and and sort of identify, you know, misleading information and false information for themselves, that's sort of the future, I think, in many ways. So, yeah, really interesting hearing from Sandra there. That's all we've got time for for this episode. Thank you, Paul, for your um, wonderful co-hosting. Did you enjoy yourself? Will Uh, you be back? Time of my life. Thanks for having me. With that endorsement still ringing in our ears, uh, we'll say goodbye. And remember that if you want to get in touch with us, you can do factcheck at theferret.scot for any uh, suggestions on the podcast, anything you want us to factcheck. Paul, if people want to, you know, if they... Let's think they wanted to go to a place where they could chat to us, but also to other Ferret members in some sort of closed online area. Where would they go? Luckily, that place now exists. So we've got our new community wow. forum page, which is called community.theferret.scot. Um, and yeah, you can get in contact with us. There's polls there and lots of other interesting and interactive content. So yeah, see you there. Excellent. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.